This is Schoon TV, recording from the Lion Hotel in the Full Service Radio with special guest, Judge Joe Brown. How you doing today, Judge Brown? Well, I'm glad to be here, Washington, D.C. I guess that's supposed to be one of my hometowns. I was born here, but that's been a long time ago. Oh, you were born here? Yes, Freedman's Hospital over at Howard. I thought you were from Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles, kindergarten through law school, and then back for that show I did 15 years. So, yeah. That's what I said. I've got a bunch of hometowns, and then there's Memphis. Throw that in the mix, too. You're like Tupac. You get around, huh? Yes, I do. Okay, okay. Um, you've been in a lot of headlines lately, a lot of controversial stuff. I wouldn't uh, call it controversial. I just call it dealing with injecting masculinity back into the equation. Uh, 35 years ago, what I've said would not have caused anybody to blink let alone pay attention to it. It's just things have changed. What do you think is behind that change? Well, I went to UCLA, right? So I graduated before the 60s were out. And on campus, late 60s, I heard, well, you had the feminist, you had the anti-war people who said war was a man thing, so destroy traditional masculinity to stop war. That didn't work. Their substitute was emotionalism. You had what we call, uh, now you call them the soy boys or the beta boys. Mm -hmm. We called them nerds, dorks, dweebs back then. And you had the nascent LGBT, now Q, now all kinds of alphabet stuff stuck on the end of it bit, who did not like traditional masculinity. They wanted to... As they had a mantra, they'd say over and over again, war is a man thing, and the way to stop war is to change the way boys are raised to men. They need to learn to emote, to cry, to shout, to let it all hang out instead of trying to be uptight and under self-control. And the last thing you need is an emotional male running around loose after he reaches physical maturity. That's why the neighborhoods are shot up so much. That's why you get the hallway shot up. The hallways and the hoods are done in because of a lack of masculinity. Masculinity used to be pounded into you at school, in the home place, on television, in the motion picture theaters. Now it's exactly the opposite. Uh, masculinity is not being buffed out going to a gym. It's a state of mind. It's a matrix of behavioral protocols that you put into a boy so when he has this input and he grows up to be a man, he becomes a man of peace who's about public peace, dignity, and order, who can be brave and courageous when necessary. He's about making where he lives a better, safer more secure place filled with economic prosperity, a sense of purpose, morality, and ethics. He deals with being a provider, a protector. He ensures that women and children get in the lifeboat first when the Titanic sinks, etc. And he's reliable, dependable, accountable, and he takes care of business. Let, let, me, let me ask you this, Judge. Um, Shouldn't women be appreciative of masculinity in the true sense? Shouldn't that be attractive to women? And if so, 
when and where did that change and why? All right. Let's see. Women ought to be appreciative. You see, look at all these people around here. There are a lot of people in this world. We've got an overpopulation problem. The reason we had that problem, instead of being food for some other large predator who wanted us for lunch or dinner or a midnight snack, is because men were the protectors. They were the hunters. The women were the gatherers. And the two of them formed a team. Anthropologists, paleontologists looking over the skeletons of 50, 60,000 year old men, uh, Africa, around the rest of the world, not the New World yet, but you find all of these male skeletons where they have all of these healed, broken bones because to go out and do your thing, to, to throw a summer barbecue, you had to get your homies together and go kill something three, four, five, six thousand pounds, and all you had was a stick with a sharp rock on the end of it. So people had to watch everybody's back, and when you were off on the hunting expedition or finding the ford across the river or finding the fish or uh, a harvestable area so you could tell the women to go out there and gather, you had to have somebody at home so that the saber-toothed, the tigers, the lions, uh, the bear, they didn't have your kin and those that you were responsible for on their lunch menu. The men were the uh, risk-takers. Yes, yeah, so uh, you can see that today. Women, I'm sure our good director over there would back this up. They hate it when men won't ask for directions. Why don't you ask for some directions? Well, just stop and ask somebody where it's going. Maybe I can find it. Or right. nowadays, I can work this GPS out. Or before, I can read a map. Or I'm going to find it. I know it's around here somewhere. They hate that. When we go shopping with them, it's like, oh man, do I have to be here? Why don't you just buy twelve of those towels instead of you've been in here two hours looking at some damn towels? What's the problem? See, that's gathering. And the other thing we were doing is finding the the pass over the mountain, finding the game trails, finding what we needed to find. That's part of what we did. Their shopping is a displacement of old-time gathering. That's what they do. The nuances of the design and the style and the weave and everything that goes to picking out the redder or the riper berries or the greener veggies or whatever in the devil somebody's going to eat. So we all had a cooperative thing. It was important, but nowadays, in the last 50 years, I'd say, some people say, I'm not an animal, I'm not bound by this. We, can th we think and we can do anything we want to do, but there's still this nature of the beast and when you cut out the masculine component, you release the apex predator on the planet Earth. The most able and effective killing machine this planet has ever produced. If they really did add a Jurassic World or something and a real T-Rex resurrected, escaped, he'd probably be an endangered species shortly. Yes, uh, Charles, uh, this one was really hairy and... It's a record uh, T-Rex. It's in the Roland Ward record book. That's why I put it on my den wall here. 
Notice the serrated teeth. I mean, it was really ferocious, but we took him down. See, we killed better than anything. And when you take that animal and you do not properly socialize and acculturate that animal, you have a mess. So what I'm looking at is that there are two big issues that face this country. One of them is its attempt to emasculate itself, which historically and, and has why? not worked out good. And the other thing is it still has not resolved the race slash ethnic problem. Uh, there are some good sound reasons for the last one. But let's talk about the emasculation. Yeah. Why? Uh, Who is behind it? Right now, I would say that the people have been propagandized for a 50-year period, and a lot of people who don't even realize it are behind it. The Nazis studied American movies and the American movie industry, and they said they've got it going on with propaganda. That propaganda used to be about doing the right thing for the right reasons. Uh, what happened if you didn't sometimes when you did the right thing, the nobility of suffering, the consequences for doing the right thing, or the ignominy of suffering, the consequences for doing the wrong thing, they were laid out. So they took the American propaganda engine, and they refined it, and they developed a precept that is very evident today. Tell a lie long enough, loud enough, and you can get anyone to believe it. That's Joseph and Goebbels. That's Joseph Goebbels, Nazi Minister of Propaganda. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, we've had a lot of lies told to us, one of which is a favorite bet noir of mine, which is toxic masculinity. I've heard that phrase for 50 years one way or another. When I first heard it, it was all masculinity is toxic, so it had to be changed. Um, nowadays, what they call toxic masculinity is the absence of masculinity, not toxic. You find that people believe in it so much that men will still go out and buy Gillette products even though they've been continuously bad-mouthed in these commercials that they've got a lesbian woman making but, but judge, let, to let, let me program us crazy. Let, let me interject here a little bit, right? For one thing, let's make it clear. You absolutely love black women. Oh, yeah. I think we uh, all yeah, love I do. Women, right? Okay. See, now, I believe women and children, well, I am of the opinion that women and children ought to get in the lifeboat first. Real women and children get in the lifeboat first. And I'll enforce that. I've done it before. And real men wait for them to get in the yes. lifeboat first. Correct? And uh, I have been in a number of situations over the years of life where it's gotten a little hot and hairy and dangerous carrying that out. That's why I have this slogan protecting womanhood and promoting manhood. And that's what you do. That's what I do. Because you are for women it's just that you're for men as well. Well, yeah, Correct? and see, the, even that question coming up is showing how the whole country has got to feminize. It's like if anybody had heard this 50 years ago they would have said, oh, what he's doing is he's pushing those principles that make sure that the family stays safe, the children can have a nice neighborhood to play in, uh, 
first graders can walk four blocks home from school and not have to worry about some pervert snatching them. Sounds uh, like you're talking about the patriarchy. Uh, yes. So when you take that out of the equation, everything goes to hell, literally. And historically, I mentioned that a little earlier, you can go back all through historic, uh, the historic record anywhere in the world, and when you find uh, a society, a culture that has lost its max masculine principle, that gravitas, that heroic element, that drive, that logic, rational, reasonable thing that goes along with masculinity, it hasn't lasted long. The most recent example is Great Britain. Hundred years ago, Britannia ruled the wave, the sun never set on the British Empire, etc., etc., etc. But they got a bit of fat there. They stopped paying attention to education. They lost their technological edge. Uh, they no longer had that hard drive. They got stiffened up a bit in World War II, but that wasn't so much the leadership. That was the ordinary Briton who still had it in him from all through their commonwealth. You had a leadership that had gotten too much off into that good old boy thing where you asked instead of giving, instead of giving a command and you didn't want to rock the boat and I said, it's just not cricket, old chap, you know? And the British High Command was filled with a bunch of incompetence that sometimes learned on the job. You can contrast that easily by looking at Erwin Rommel, the brilliant German field marshal, mm -hmm. uh, Lieutenant General George S. Patton, and then looking at that bickering, stalling, druggy, dragging his feet, Montgomery. Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And you see the difference in Montgomery was about the best he had. Earl Mountbatten, you know, was in the Far East, but he sort of muddled through as well. So you get this this thing, whether it's Rome, whether it's Greece, the Greco-Roman thing, the Macedonian thing, you get Spain, you get France, you get England, they all fall by the wayside when they use the masculine principle. I guess World War II when they stiffened the them masculine up, principle? lose it. Lose it, okay, yes. And I guess World War II stiffened up Europe a little bit, but... They have lost a lot, too. So I'd say the country that's up and coming in the world right now is the People's Republic of China. And they have a nice balance between man and woman. The yin-yang principle is but, but being applied. Speaking of China, I, I just read the other day they have a, 30, a surplus of 30 million men due to their one-child policy over the past few decades. But... Moving right along, one of the things... They've relaxed that, by the way. I know they did, but, but they, they're playing catch-up now. But, well, but look mm -hmm, at this. Mm -hmm. so, let's go scientifically. I got one of these new iPhones, and I ordered it. Mm -hmm. And they give you a tracking update. So it originated in the People's Republic of China. There was another stop in the People's Republic and another one in Hong Kong before it was shipped from Hong Kong to the West Coast. So your iPhone technology is possessed by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. They have experimentally verified that you can create a warp field. They've done that in a the laboratory, which the Americans are struggling to do. 
They did another star check thing two years ago. They actually beamed a small amount of matter from the surface, well, from one of their laboratories to a satellite in space and then beamed it back. The Americans verified that they did it. I mean, hey, warp drive, beam me aboard, Scotty, stuff, and we're still struggling. They have the most powerful computer network in the world, the most powerful organic computer. They have another thing, 1,300,000,000 people, yep. and they make education an imperative. Is it educational indoctrination? Both. Okay. We used to do indoctrination, too, about manhood, womanhood, duty, honor, responsibility, and all yeah, of this other stuff. There's a duality stuff. to everything. I yeah. So yes. what happens is you've got a choice in China. Basically, you do some menial labor or you go as far as you can in school. The choice is easy. People usually take the I'll sit there and sweat it out at a table rather than in a uh, factory or out in a rice paddy that's fertilized with human excrement up to your knees. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, we only have about 320 million people. They've got one billion more, a uh, more profound educational network. Ours is too expensive, and it's discouraged. And in Memphis, the kids went to school 161 days last year out of, out of 365. So 200, uh, about 204 days off. That's disgusting. And you get the kids to school at 7 a.m. for elementary school, and they get out at 2 o'clock, and the parents or parent have to take off from work to go get them. So it disrupts the work week. It uh, messes up the traffic flow. The kids are asleep for the first two hours of school, and nothing gets done, and they spend more time doing something else other than getting prepared for the world. It's, it's bad. By the way, a digression. It's one of the bad things that the baby boomers, my generation, did for the country, and that was we said we needed to have choices. Everyone should be able to pick what they wanted to do. But what we did not realize nor appreciate at the time was that we had grown up under a very strict regime. You didn't ask what you wanted to you take. Were told. You were told. You didn't decide what you wanted to wear or how you combed your hair. Or pursue or what, your dream. Yeah. Whatever that is. So you had a rigid core curriculum that you had to acquire. And as a result of that, our generation was singularly prepared to make choices. But when we said everybody, you know, when started talking about kids as being little people uh, in the hood, little shorty, you know, and not realizing that they're children or refusing to accept that, we gave them choices, and children who have no idea what the world is about are going to make choices that are not necessarily what they ought to make unless there's somebody in the home place dictating what they're going to do, at least at an early age. And that's breaking down because the family's breaking down. Uh, even in the national defense sector, 2011, the Pentagon, right here locally, did a series of white papers, and they said, one of the problems with the incoming military personnel is that they're in a physically fit condition, but they're not as mentally tough as we'd like. We can't toughen them up mentally. You have to come in with that, but we can make you physically strong. They attributed that to the... Is that due to the lack of fathers in the that household? That is exactly where this is going. Their paper specifically concluded this. 
an analysis of the Census Bureau, they said it appears that for the first decade of this century, 42% of Americans 35 and under were born out of wedlock. That's all ethnicities. That's all Americans. All Americans. What about the black community? It's worse. It's like 70%, it, is it not? It's, it's higher than that. And then right now for, well, nine years ago, for those people who were 20 and under for all Americans, it was 80 to 82%. What happened to the institution of marriage? That's one of the problems. Back in the 60s, we had women talking about marriage was a form of slavery. So we had some, like Nikki Giovanni, the poet, came to UCLA on at least two or three occasions. And the she, Nikki Giovanni. The Nikki Giovanni. The one the young, young black women look up yeah, to. Yeah, and she mm -hmm. was espousing the idea that marriage was slavery, so if you wanted to have children... Get knocked up by somebody who was smart and physically set out and don't even tell the SOB he was the daddy because the worst thing you could do would be to involve a man in the role of a father that would just mess children up. So Do these have, women hate men? They don't like the fact that they've got XX chromosomes instead of XY, and they feel they are deprived. The best I can tell off of what I saw 50 years ago when it was developing. But let me ask you this. If men were so good to women, what caused them to change and turn on men in that manner? They had a bubble of safety. I had an interesting experience. I had a Russian professor, Soviet professor. It was a woman. She was a visiting professor emeritus from the University of Moscow, and she had previously been the highest-ranking woman on the Soviet Politburo, and also in the NKVD prior to its becoming the KGB. She only had two people she answered to, Comrade Stalin and Comrade Beria, chief of the secret police. And she had me read this paper that was a translation of one that Lenin wrote in 1919, and it said... Russia, and this is, I'm going to put it over related to the gender thing. Mm -hmm. This is where I got the idea. Said Russia cannot become a democracy until there are no significant numbers of Russians with a living memory of their enslavement under the czars. Incidentally, we give Ronald Reagan the credit, but he doesn't deserve it because Lenin predicted that glasnost and perestroika by those very names would occur in the 1990s when no significant number of living Russians had that kind of memory. And I translated that back then to what was happening with the feminist, feminine liberation thing, the feminist movement was that there were no significant numbers of live women in the United States that had a living memory of why men had that position of being at the top of the dominance hierarchy. And basically what that's about is when you had a frontier situation or a rough, uncivilized situation in your urban areas, somebody had to administer the protection for the communities involved and the person that calls the shots on who gets protected and who dies should be the military commander which established men being in that position of being at the top of the heap 
decision-wise. Who would be that person now? The police, the government? Do, have women shifted from relying on the man for that protection to the state? To the police the, to and the to the state. The state, the police is representative of the state. Right? Yeah, see, so police the, are... The women now have displaced the man's traditional role with the government. Yes, what, what happens is the inner city is becoming, has become a matriarchy. And that's one of the problems we have in terms of community police relations is the order, primary order, in any healthy community typically throughout history came from the masculine component. Mm -hmm. Now the masculine component has not been trained in masculinity, so they don't keep public peace, dignity, and order, and you have the police come in. Police were designed just like the name police says. It's like in the military. Tell me we gonna police this area. I don't wanna see a cigarette butt gum wrapper. I don't wanna see a damn thing. Everything on the ground except what's growing there is not gonna be there. That's called policing. So KP, kitchen police, you clean it up. So what the police were doing is coming in and dealing with the fringes of the situation that the men in the community were expected to take care of the masculine imposition of public peace, dignity, and order. So now that you have taken the masculine component out of the picture, there is no source of peace in a very disordered hood, barrio, trailer park, Appalachian hillside, or even now in some of the more affluential school systems or school yards or, hell, a Vegas hotel. Because you are relying on the police, first thing, you don't want the police to be there all the time. Second thing, you don't want a police state, and that's what we're getting right now. I'm alarmed at the call to do something about the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment. And those are the things that this country and black people, white people, brown people, yellow people have depended upon. Free press freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, and rights remain silent. So they want the First Amendment modified so you can have it as long as you are pressing the politically correct position and you don't hurt anybody's feelings. Is it fair to say that um, the feminist movement, and to a large extent the LGBT movement, is somewhat a precursor to a totalitarian state? Orwell's animal farm. All animals are equal except the pigs are more equal. But I don't say all homosexuals. I say that LGBTQ mentality where it's not just a sexual practice. It becomes a lifestyle. Politicized. Yes. Yeah, see, there are two types of homosexuals. Those that hate the opposite sex and those that want to be the opposite sex. And it's an interesting mix and match. And then... You see throughout history there have been homosexual men that have done masculine things. They just have Alexander, sex habits. Alexander the Great? Yeah, uh, Julius Caesar. He, was, he had a saying about him. There was a saying about him, no man's wife was safe when Caesar was around and Caesar would play wife to any man, but he was bad at it. <laughs> so it's not just a sexual practice. It's a lifestyle thing that is very bad because it does not want to put itself in the position of doing that 
difficult masculine thing. Like you look at all of the skeletons of Ice Age men all over the world, Africa, well, where they were in the world, Africa or Europe or Asia, and a lot of broken bones, but you do not see that in the female skeletons. They, they don't were ha- safe. They were safe. So that's what we do, women and children in a lifeboat first. Now, that is and not... And that's not a bad thing at all. That's not a bad thing at all, because... In the scheme of things, women are a vital resource and men are expendable. That's got to do with polygamy, monogamy, monogamy. and uh, what happens is one man in an old society who was on top of the game, he was a warrior, he was a thinker, he was a leader, he was the alpha male, he was encouraged to have a harem, a sereglo, or whatever it was, and that would produce more people for the tribe who had these superior abilities. Mm-hmm. So a man traditionally was not allowed to mate until he had proven himself. And then once he had proved himself, he mated. it. Almost and if like he, the lions in the pride. Yeah, huh? if he died, then the rest of the community stepped in. Now that Hillary witch co-opted one of our sayings, it takes a village to raise a child. That's Nigerian, it's Yoruba, and the whole thing is fear not, old warrior or hunter or man of your people, if you die in service to your people because your tribe, your village will see that your sons are raised to be men, proper men of the et cetera, et cetera. Let me say this, let me say this here, right? So I'm hearing a strong propagation of the value of manhood. And this is not at the expense of womanhood. This is to the betterment of womanhood. Now, is that part of the reason why you felt it was an insult to the black man for them to suggest putting Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill before a black man? Well, there are several things in that. Why I felt Tubman being put on the currency right now has a number of reasons. One, she's a courageous, brave lady. But the rules are you put a male on the currency that you can fold and put in your pocket. So they've done that for a long time. So now when it's somebody black's turn, they say, well, you know, we've downplayed you guys all these 400 years. So what did you expect? We're going to pick a woman. And then 1971 and 2, I was here in this city working as an intern with a D.C. think tank, and I remembered going through the slave pamphlets on microfilm in the Library of Congress. One of the secrets of imposition of slavery, uh, to the imposition of slavery, was at all costs do not ever deal with nor recognize the masculine component Always deal with the women, the gray-haired women, never the senior men. Always put them last. And then I am rather determined to put this in place. Why weren't black folk consulted about who we wanted on this bill? Now, see, we didn't come up with the idea of Tubman on the bill. Who did? Fifteen years ago. I was in Hollywood. Man, my show at one time was carried by Paramount as a syndicated matter and then later CBS as syndication. 
Well, I wandered through those corridors of power uh, in Paramount's headquarters, and I'd sometimes pause before I got to an open door and listen. So the feminist component who did not like black men, particularly hated black men. Why black men? Because they thought we were the most masculine males in the country, and we were the worst. We treated uh, our women uh, worse. We were violent. That, how could that be? We held no power. How could we be the most I know, but that's what masculine? they thought. Remember, what you think is not always what, what you is, believe. Yeah. What you is not always reality. So they came up with this idea that they wanted Susan B. Anthony on some folding money. They had given them a brief run and put her on a silver dollar for a couple of years that they minted, and then they stopped. It's a collector's item now. And then they had had a thing where they wanted to put her on Mount Rushmore, but the artist, the sculptor, was an avowed Klansman, and he said no way he was going to distort the scheme of things. And Congress wouldn't fund it anyway, wouldn't pay the man on top of all of that for putting Susan B. Anthony's picture up there next to Washington, Lincoln, etc. And they got the idea that I heard later of let's get a black woman. That way the liberal whites can't attack her and we can defuse the black people so we can get a black woman. Stop right there for a second, Judge. It sounds to me that the white feminists don't have enough power to go against the white male power structure. No, they don't. But the black male power structure is very vulnerable and has been vulnerable as a result of the slavery we, we uh, encountered and experienced. And we are a soft target where they can get success. So in, in saying that, and this is just my theory, it looks like it would be easier to get a black woman because they would get black women to join with them and we can't push back because what we have to say Yeah, then get the reaction I get. So yeah. that was plotted. So they didn't even have a black woman. Now, they overlooked one that I thought would have been one of their obvious choices, Sojourner Truth, who from the 1840s was a regular speaker at these feminine suffrage uh, meetings. Mm -hmm. And she was famous for her speaking. Uh, and she had one called I Am a Woman. Am I not a woman? Am I not a human? Mm -hmm. uh, that they loved. So they didn't even know who Sojourner Truth was. And that's I because asked it them, was white lesbians. Who yeah, I said, do you know, how about, mm -hmm. I said, since you want to get a black woman on there, what about Sojourner Truth, huh? So, well, where did you get Harriet Tubman? Well, she was a courageous warrior. I said, uh, well, okay. And then that has to be taken in context with this movie that they'd been planning for a while, which as the director... Which goes back to propaganda. Yeah, which Gable as the style. director mm -hmm. said, they initially wanted a white woman to play Harriet Tubman, and the like, director reports that the Hollywood executive said, it's been a long time ago, nobody remembers anywhere. So nobody remembers. So They could have gotten Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, you could have got a lot of people. But you see, <laughs> in the scheme of things... Everybody on these bills is not a dead president. Ben Franklin comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And also some financiers are on those bills, some of the higher bills. You know, they go up to a half million. Oh, wow. So you have, how about Crispus Attucks, 
the first man that everybody, white and black, acknowledges died in the American Revolution, a Bostonian stevedore, free man. Mm-hmm. Why not him? Uh, Chief Osceola, his father was an escaped slave. His mother was a Seminole Indian. And he led a successful war against the U.S. Army. <laughs> he was beating Andrew Jackson down in what they call in the War Department records the Colored Wars. They've named the city after him, Osceola, Arkansas. How about him? How about Danemark Vesey, a free black man who was a carpenter in North Carolina? How about that man? He got turned in by some well-conditioned and domesticated slaves. Uh, Nat Turner, and you can go on with the list, but then you get to the black Superman in this country's history, a combination of Marcus Garvey, W.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, and King all rolled into one, Frederick Douglass. He set up and he escaped from slavery. He went back and he rescued more women, more men and women from slavery than Harriet Tubman did, but they don't get into that. And, you, and, 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 and why? What it, sound, what it sounded like to me, Judge, is that black women are constantly being elevated and promoted, whether it be in politics, as now you see all these women mayors around the country and Stacey yes. Adams in Georgia, or, or, or in activism, black women started Black Lives Matter. They are the go-to people to be elevated by people outside our community, which diminishes the value of black men. And it also causes black women to look outside of black men for the protection and the providing that they should well, naturally get from us. Is that, is that what's going on? Well, Willie Lynch, William Lynch, uh, West Indies planter, said that one of the secrets to causing the slaves to domesticate themselves is conditioning the black female to understand that she could not get safety, protection, and provision from her males and to only look to white males to do it. That goes back the first time I saw that was so, in a 1710 pamphlet. So that creates a natural enmity or... or it's a cultural thing that's been imposed on us. So uh, a, a black woman would in turn play the womanly role to a white man that she wouldn't play to a black, yes, woman, and then a black a, man if she's been subjected to this sort of program. Yeah, but it's deeper than that. It's mm-hmm. a cultural thing. Uh, pimps commonly run this game, but it's a feminine game that black women are taught. I got to break him down to size. Yeah, girl. Got to tear him down to manageable pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And see, that's the same where a pimp does. He, t- he takes the woman who's susceptible to that and breaks her down into manageable pieces. He tears her down. And that's what you find is a cultural thing going back well, that was advocated in this 1710, I think a 1708 pamphlet that I read in the Library of Congress, or at least on microfilm, and it was repeated over and over and over again. It was even in the black church. Uh, they were advised to get a stud, and if you couldn't afford one, go in collectively with your fellow slave owners and also make the stud the slave preacher and go watch the services, not to see what the color they're up to, 
but to see which women got happy and got to shouting and rolling all over the floor. This is in these pamphlets. This isn't they, from me. They, they probably also went to validate the preacher because if the white people are coming no, in. No, that, that wasn't what it was. Okay. The theory was as if the slave female was rolling all over the floor, getting happy, that's because she was coming in the estrus. So make sure that the slave preacher covered her within the next three days. And oh, by the way, they advised that maybe they should consider allowing slave marriage so when the slave husband found out that the slave preacher was coming to go have sex with his wife and would be there to impregnate his wife, not him, then he would really get bent out of shape. So this was also used as a demoralizing factor. This isn't from him. This is in these pamphlets for 200 years. So... Speaking, it is what it is. Speaking of slavery, right? Uh, I mean, I, there's a lot of talk about it. It just can't seem to go away from the slave movies to the TV shows or whatever. But there, Byron Allen has been in the media doing a press run about the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is a year after the Civil War ended, to free the slaves and... According to his, uh, the proponents of Byron Allen in media, his case with Comcast is about Section 1981 or 1982 of the Civil Rights Act. And he claims that if he loses his case, it could impact all That's of us. That's crap. Please tell us what's going That's on there from crap. a legal perspective. We have no stake in that. See, first off, Byron Allen is fronting off for CBS. Generation X and the millennials would not be happy knowing that CBS can't get on cable without going through Fox. You know, the mega folk. Mm -hmm. And going through Byron Allen becomes an independent means of getting in. They've been backing him for a while. I even had a big dispute with CBS over a contract provision after I left them. Is this company black-owned? Uh it's fronted off and financed by CBS. See, here's the deal. Comcast is basically hooked up with uh, another entity. And Comcast is Hollywood. And black people, particularly straight black men, don't have any traction at all in Hollywood. But well, they do better than CBS, Paramount, uh, Columbia, who are all adjuncts of Viacom. Now, here is the thing. On Comcast, you have Bounce TV, which carries my show now. They're reruns. That's owned by well, Andrew Young. Well, it was founded by Ambassador Andrew Young mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King III. The third. Mm -hmm. You've got TV One, a sister founded that. You've got OWN that was founded by Oprah under the guidance of Roger King, mm -hmm. who had King World. And now it's controlled since it floundered by a lesbian consortium, white lesbian consortium. So... You see, you have to deal with what's going on in this whole matrix that we have out there. They don't really have any programming that pushes sound masculinity in black men. There are none. Has there ever been programming? Yeah, there used to be. 
But you see, part of the plan back in the 60s was for these elements to get control of the print media, television, and motion pictures. They didn't have uh, social media like they have now. Nobody had heard of the net because it hadn't been invented by the military at that point in time. Nobody had pocket computers or cell mm -hmm. phones, and you could rent a calculator for $400, right. you know, a semester if you wanted that and you were in the science. But see, they wanted control of these things, and Hollywood was floundering because color TV was knocking the bottom out of the motion picture industry. So they got into that, and they started propagandizing. So you are right now... 50 years downstream from a very effective propaganda campaign to get people to think a way that nobody in the world was thinking about before. I'm all for women having their rights. I've got lady lawyers, doctors, dentists, uh, accounting people, but it's nothing like that. It's something fundamental about knocking the yin-yang balance the hell out of the box where you destroy the masculine component, you get, our people really have a problem with this. Yo, man, you know, like me and the posse, man, we moving plenty merchandise, man, big cheddar, man, like we got, yay, man, it's all about, uh, young man, if the court is disposed to put you on probation, how do you, uh, how are you going to sustain yourself? Well, yo, Yana, with due respect, I got four ladies take good care of me. I got two got good J-O-Bs, one get a crazy check, one get AFDC. <laughs> they takes care of me. Excuse me, young man, what do you do? Well, you know, I smooths them out. What do you do? That sounds like being a gigolo, and that's not exactly legal. What do you do? Huh? But, but Judge, back to the... the 1866 Civil Rights Act. Well, I'm getting back to that. But what, you see, there's a, context, mm -hmm. there's a context. There's a context. I want the context is what I just said about what Byron Allen is really doing. He's fronting off for CBS, and they're attacking Comcast because Comcast is a rival. Okay. Now back to the 1866 Act. That's a red herring. The Thirteenth Amendment. By the way, Frederick Douglass was one of the driving engines behind the 13th Amendment got in place in January 1865. At that point, there was an interesting problem. Nobody had ever defined citizenship at that point, so they passed the 1866 Act, and the main thing that comes out of that is our current definition of citizenship. The 14th Amendment passed a year and a half later that embodied almost everything in the 1866 Act, and that was uh, 1868. In 1875, what happened is they came up with another Civil Rights Act. They had the end of Reconstruction shortly after that, the Reconciliation, and in 1878, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the 1866 and 1875 acts unconstitutional. So effectively, it was null and void at that point. They said that 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments did not allow Congress to go in and legislate what people did personally on their own dime. So Nowadays, the 1866 Act is cited, but it's always at the tail end of a whole bunch of precedents with 
laws and acts and bills that have so come we, in over that last 150 years. We won't lose years. any protection. We won't lose anything. If Byron Allen loses you won't, his case. We won't lose a thing. It's two big corporate interests fighting over an issue that is a red herring. In other words, they've got some quasi-smart lawyers for CBS uh, and Viacom and some private law firms brought in, paid big money to come up and brainstorm with what can we do to get our foot in the door. So they came up with this. They said, we'll get black folk. Now, black folk are running around hollering about, we got to have this so we can't afford blah, blah, blah. And they're trying to influence who? The U.S. Supreme Court. Now, that's mob influence, which you don't want from anybody. Second thing is what the Supreme Court has in front of it is not the case itself. It's just a technical matter of did Byron Allen's people plead properly under what is now allowed. <laughs> so if they find that they pled properly, then it just goes back for trial on the merits. And Byron Allen would have to prove that Comcast had no economic incentive or had no economic gain or had no economic basis for their decision. Now, everything he wants to carry has already been carried by Comcast and to an extent has bombed. He does not have production facilities. What he has is a library slash catalog, and he wants to play some old black rerun content, good times, moving on up. He was trying to get my show in there as part of the catalog, but Comcast through bounce has it already. And it doesn't play in all markets. They don't play black content in all markets, even if it would work in all markets. They pick a predominantly black market and go there and they neglect the rest of it. So, so, there, so there is some validity to our, our, um, our businesses being handcuffed to some degree stymied? Well, they won't but we don't have all? one. Oh, wow. See, Allen is not independent. Let me, I'll tell you a story. I decided that after 15 years, CBS effectively wanted me to take an IOU on the back end. That was a percentage of the gross I was supposed to be getting. Mm -hmm. They stole it. They embezzled it. They used it to finance the distribution for these Tom Cruise movies that mm -hmm. they were doing. And some of them split it up so guys 35 up-and-coming executive, but when my show started, he wasn't but 20, or he's 32 and he's still in high school. So he's got a successful show, but it wasn't his idea. There's nothing he claimed credit for. So they were trying to steal the money to set up other pilots, and they just did it over and over again, and it bombed. So they wanted me to take effectively an IOU. I told them to go to hell. The other thing was they wanted me to push the LGBT agenda, and I said... They have their rights. They do with anything they want to do politically and what's lawfully. That's their business. But my people and the country as a whole have enough other problems that I'm not going to get caught up in that. That's you, not me. So we b broke up. Now, what happens is they have a NAPTI thing, National Association of Television Producers and Executives. It used to be in New Orleans every year. Now in January, second week in January, it's in Miami. So I'm down there, we got a booth, and we've got some projects. So CBS is like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're not going to sign this contract? I said, hell no. So we noticed Byron Allen over there talking to the CBS executives. So we sent a real cutie pie, 
working in our booth over there. And she just walked around with a recorder and recorded what was going on. So he was plotting with them about how they were going to fund him. And, oh, by the way, they wanted him to try and hook me into a contract violation so they could keep me from coming up with an alternative. So we heard this. It was taped. And here he comes, la-da-da, three days later, he wants to ask me if I want to do this reconstruction of cases, not live, real cases, but fictional stuff. I said I wasn't interested. He started talking money. I said, come up with the money. He couldn't. He didn't have it. And that stuff about him being a billionaire is crap. That's just with CBS propaganda. Yeah, that's about all of them. Because he a broke Negro. And, and bottom line is, is he sends me a contract to sign that's got the exact same language in it that CBS had in the contact track with mine. And if I'd signed it, we laughed at it. I showed it to my law crew. He said, this has to be a setup. I said, it's the same idea I got. So I told him to go to hell, you know. Mm hmm but see, I paid attention after that, so he was buying up all these re well, CBS was buying up all of these reruns, and it's old thing when you've got a civil rights bill or you know a priority in hiring, you know, you go get you some black folk to front for you, you give them a little change, and it's really the same old, same old behind, project, yeah, minority thing. set aside, same, same thing. deal. Yep. And see, there's money set aside to these major studios for doing black programming. Uh, most of it isn't even spent. And then what you get is instead of black programming, the way it used to be 50 years ago, where you got black folk doing something for the people. You maybe have had spooks set by who stepped out the door and some other stuff like that, where it is a driving engine where, you know, I'm black and I'm proud, you know and wearing a green, black, brown, tan dashiki instead of something that glares like a neon sign. Uh, the phrase used to be, are you ready for the revolution? Seeing a whole lot of people were doing that. White SDS members, uh, brown, brown berets, the mm -hmm. Chicano brothers, you know, and you had a Native American thing, the Asian thing, and it was called Third World Cooperation. It, it was a beautiful thing. And then they changed all that mess around uh, that they were trying to do and they propagandized it. So you started getting what they call black exploitation films. Mm -hmm. They've even got one out right now. It says a classic black exploitation film. Damn. They even advertise it. And uh, is Eddie Murphy, but. Eddie Murphy talked to uh, Rudy Ray Moore, who came up with the idea of Dolomite, and it was supposed to do a project, but Murphy double-crossed uh, Rudy Ray Moore when he was alive before he died. Now they're putting it out. It wasn't even original to him, and they're talking about Rudy Ray Moore's character, but they advertise it, Dolomite, a classic black exploitation film. That's what you see if you look at the trailers. So... They ran these things, and then from the brother wearing a suit and tied down doing business, or he's moving the thing along and black liberation, people's liberation. You know, you got the glorification, the pimp, the hoe, the slut, the harlot, the drug dealer, the thug, and see, that's like even the music's changed. They don't talk about love anymore. They talk about moving grams, moving rhymes, doing rhymes, and 
you know, hoes and bitches and everything like that, which is crazy. So they're perpetuating the dysfunction. In dysfunction. Our so now what do you have? You got Pose. Oh, wow. You got Empire, you know, and basically that's a glorified thug. And it's interesting, Empire, uh, what they did, they based it on um, Barry Gordy, except the gangster element ain't Barry Gordy. It's a white guy named Norby Walker. And see, Norby was a gangster. He had extorted Motown, and Motown was paying him 15% off the top for years. Now they're a library thing. They still got a Senate if he's still breathing. Hmm. So, I mean, see, it's not functional for us. But, but, but for, the, for the sake of continuity, right, we, we discussed the 1866 Civil Rights Act. And how it, that's nothing it has nothing to hey, do well, with that's us. That's why I moved on. Yeah, it's, yeah, but it but has I, so I wanna, little impact I wanna, I on our situation. But I want to talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that nobody's talking about with HR five, the Equality Act, and what is going to be the impact well, on see, black women when that gets ratified? Well, see, what you have to consider is the Civil Rights Act of 18, 1964, as amended 68, the Voting Rights Act. It came into 67, 68. The Voting Rights Act is in there too. You got Title VII, mm -hmm. which is a very important thing that says there should be no discrimination based on race, color, creed, national origin, religion, or sex. And that's Title VII. That's Title VII. And that's been priced out of most people's pockets. Federal court has gotten so tied up in red tape now, and it is so time critical that the average person that needs the federal courts to enforce Title VII can't afford to get in because he's broke. He got fired wrong or she got fired wrongly. Mm -hmm. So you got to get a lawyer, and they're now becoming few and far on the ground that will give you some slack and start talking about a contingency fee. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's not a third. It's an amount that the judge has to approve at the conclusion of the case. So the technical details of getting into court to enforce Title VII have just gotten so ruinous and heavy that few people can do anything about it. So black women... Black men, everybody is lost out. One thing, mm -hmm. I, I'll say this, for example, Title VII had an immediate impact. Like right now, they ask on job applications, but under Title VII, you can't. And that is, have you ever been arrested? The rule is you can ask only if you've been convicted, not arrested, unless you have a particularly limited type of employment situation. Why? The U.S. Supreme Court, pursuant to Title VII, said it's statistically impossible to be a male black in the United States of America and reach 25 without having been arrested at least once for no cause. Wow. So you can't ask that. See, that's the kind of impact that's on a global or at least national scale where Title VII comes in. But you see, that kind of thing, the various appropriate sections of the 1964 Act, they've been priced out of ordinary people's ability to use. And then the 1964 Act isn't really a Civil Rights Act. Johnson 
LBJ had an interesting background. I'll just give you that briefly so it explains what he did with it. He had a dog, and he was in Texas. And the sheriff killed his dog. No cause. He got mad. Now, Johnson had been running a school that he put on out of his own pocket as a young man to give or teach literacy to Mexican-Americans and blacks. Mm -hmm. So what happened is he decided to run for office. So he went out and registered all of the Mexican-Americans and blacks in his district and got them to the polls and got elected. So when he got president, he decided that black folk needed a civil rights act, but he couldn't get one through. He yanked Kennedy's, which he thought was too weak. So what he did is he presented it as a military bill. And the preamble on the introduced bill says, whereas the United States of America is engaged in a life or death struggle with the forces of totalitarianism and communism, and whereas the military is the front line of defense, whereas it's been long integrated, whereas morale is a paramount factor in the effectiveness of the troops, whereas the base commanders have no authority to direct the accommodations, treatment, et cetera, given to their minority uh, uh, military personnel, uh, be it resolved that in the interest of the defense of the United States of America, this bill is necessary. So it's a military bill that got properly branded as the Civil Rights Bill. He did that because he was basically leaning on his Southern colleagues. Now, you gonna get these niggers what they want this year. I'll let you get away last year with not giving it to them, but I defy you to sit down there and be soft on them commies and do what you're doing by voting against it. So that's how we got the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. Now, the, the H.R. 5 piece that they call the Equality Act that they're trying to amend to include sexuality and uh, gender, oh, sexual orientation. Sexual orientation. See, can that can that affect? Because what I was See, told, and I'm not a lawyer, right? But I was told that now, with that, white gay men could satisfy some of the Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Some of the but see, it's unnecessary. Black women used to uh, Yeah, satisfy. but see, it's unnecessary. But a lot of black women are supporting this. Don't yeah, they but they don't realize they're... the consequences. Okay. What see, are the it's consequences It's not necessary because... I want them to hear it. It's not necessary mm -hmm. because under the First Amendment, you have a right, freedom of speech, freedom of press... Uh, that has been expanded a freedom of choice to do whatever in the devil you want to do if it's legal. Mm -hmm. So that's already there. Now, the interesting thing about it, it's like dress code. New York and California have effectively abolished dress code. So it's like what kind of discrimination occurred against you well, let's take the court. You're supposed to come in there if you're a man and you got on a suit and tie. Jacket and tie is mandatory. No jeans most places. Mm -hmm. Women get to come in with all kinds of other deviations from that thing, but they're still kind of a dress code of making it formal, right? So what kind of discrimination is vested against you if you walk in there and you say, I'm wearing a T-shirt. Oh, no, you are not coming in here and addressing the court with a T-shirt on without the court's permission. No way. Well, I'm discriminated against. 
see, when they put it into that context, when you start doing what they're trying to do to amend the act, they're talking about First Amendment choices made. So you can't discriminate against someone for an expression unless there's a valid reason like a dress code or how you wear your hair, you know, and that can be important. Give you an anecdote. We're selecting the jury. I'm writing the jurors' names down and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I look up and sitting right in the middle of the front row of prospective jurors is Marge Simpson. <laughs> She's got her hair up this high, just like the character in the cartoon, and it's purple. And it's like, how in the devil is anybody going to pay attention to what's going on when everybody, I'm looking at all the jurors, they're looking at this woman, the lawyers are looking at this woman, the deputies are looking at this woman, the defendants are looking up, and it's like it's distracting. Now, you see, that's an example of how you got a right to do what you want, but sometimes it's dysfunctional. So if somebody just simply dresses like he is RuPaul, well, that comes into a problem, too. You go out here and you look at the songbirds, and you can tell the boys from the girls. You go to the zoo. I told you about that the other, last night. Mm -hmm. Go look at the primate cage. You can tell the boys from the girls, the gorillas, the chimps, all of our closest relatives. You can tell boys from girls, and uh, that's 3.8 to 4 billion years of evolution that's packed into that. So now somebody wants to say, we're going to take gender, which used to be synonymous with sex, and we're going to take gender, and over a period of years, we're going to modify gender, so now it's fluid. So we will deal with changing the definition of sex to what we have modified the word gender to reflect, which is it has no meaning anymore. So we can get away with that. So RuPaul coming in in a courtroom, you know, somebody's going to get shortchanged on justice just because the average human has got a reaction to male and female that he's got, she's got nothing to do with. Mother Nature built it into it's us. Hardwired. So it's hardwired. So the bottom line is, is you've got somebody that violates it. It's just like motion sickness. It's a distraction. Well, it's like motion sickness. You ever had been seasick? It's like your eyes are telling you one thing, your inner ear is telling you another. Well, in this case, what you're hearing in your ear about what somebody is claiming to be and what your eyes are seeing doesn't match up, so it kind of makes some people feel a little weird. So when you have this going on in the courtroom, equity and justice don't get done because somebody's paying more attention to what is, in the scheme of things, a distraction rather than the evidence and the law mm -hmm. so you see these are things that come into play so when you get this modification you have to take it in context with some other stuff the Jesse Smollett thing he is perhaps a nephew uh, by um, marriage of Kamala Harris's Harris, yeah. sister and the Chicago police we had some on my radio show one time we interviewed them the stuff they got was him on video 
the week prior to Halloween buying that noose at a costume shop. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that he had been campaigning for Kamala Harris within five hours, four hours of when this thing goes down, and they run right in shortly after and start amending that dead bill to reflect anti-lynch bill and has nothing to do with black folk. They're already anti-lynch bills on the books. That was to get LGBT in the door. And yeah, and he had the noose around his neck. But let me ask you this, because we we got to kind of get ready to wrap it up. Um, last but not least, let's save the best for Donald Trump. What What is your take on Trump? Is Trump a racist? I don't think so. I've talked to a number of black entrepreneurs who back in the late 80s and 90s, were early 90s, were trying to get financing. They couldn't. Somebody told them to go check with Donald Trump. So they come back and tell me they got a loan from Donald Trump. He gave them a term loan. Show up with the interest in the principal, one check. But they had to go see him personally. They independently relate this tale that when they saw him, he said, this is what you're supposed to pay me? This our agreement? I said, yeah. And then tore the check up, shook their hands, and congratulations. Now run your business. And this was when? This was back in the 90s. It, it, See, most people don't even know this. He had a sister. He was, every time you saw him back in the 90s, fine paper bag, brown, beautiful black model. He likes fine women. He didn't have any problem with dating a black woman, walking her down red carpets. So, I mean, she says he's not a racist. He just doesn't like many people, black or white. And he appreciates people who do stuff within their lane. Uh, Well, not stay in their lane, but where they choose to be, if they do it well, he admires them. Black, white, brown, red, yellow. Most people don't know this. He did was the finance man behind Jesse Jackson's two runs for president. Wow. So, you know, he talks, but I don't mind somebody talking. I think we've gotten too sensitive to that. That's part of the effeminization of the country. I remember in junior high and high school, hey, man, I won't say nothing, man, but last night when I saw your mama, man, you don't know I was over there because you were asleep, man, but blah, 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 blah. We ran the dozens. That was our sport. Mm-hmm. So we were used to talking about each other. Now, man, he talked about my mama, man. What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Do, do you think... Uh Trump will get reelected? I think he's going to get reelected. Uh, this impeachment mess we've got right now, there's a thing called the U.S. Constitution, and the Constitution says the president is the chief diplomatic officer of the United States. It puts no limits on his discretion. It simply says that if he comes up with any treaties, they have to be ratified by the Senate. If a treaty is ratified by the Senate, it becomes part of the supreme law of the land. The president and other elected and appointed officials are under oath required to follow the law of the land. The State Department, Secretary of State, are part of his cabinet and are essentially advisors to the president. He's the boss. So what he does relative to Biden is simply what is allowed and mandated by the 
Constitution, specifically Article One, Section 8, that says the president is charged with, quote, enforcing the law of nations. We have an Interpol treaty with various European states and also one specifically with the Ukraine that requires that we basically investigate, apprehend, prosecute, extradite criminal elements and criminality. Mm -hmm. So Biden out of his own mouth, and I've heard this tape twice, uh, January this year, he says, well, 2019, he says, I guess I broke some laws, <laughs> extortion. I told the uh, Ukrainians if they didn't get rid of this uh, the prosecutor prosecutor's name yeah, is Skola, anti Skola the anti I think. Corruption prosecutor yeah, he Ukraine. said if you don't get rid of him, we'd withhold $85 billion in loan guarantees. So his son, who had just been discharged for the military for being a junkie, uh, had a drug problem, had no history in business. He affiliates with this, and at the time, Biden was in charge of the U.S.'s Ukrainian posture and relations. Uh, Obama had assigned him that. And by implication, he brought Obama into committing a crime in office which is a felony, it's extortion. He committed one extortion by his own mouth, uh, threatening to withhold 85, million in, 85 billion in loan guarantees if they didn't get rid of this prosecutor who was zeroing in on that corporation that his son had just been hired to represent after Biden Sr. had uh, been assigned by the president the task of dealing with Ukrainian diplomacy. So, Son gets $18.5 million out of it, and he has no background other than a dishonorable discharge from the armed services for drug abuse. But one last question. Do you think black people are missing an opportunity with Trump? Oh, yeah. See, you've got somebody that is not a lifetime Republican. He's been a blue dog Democrat for most of his life. He usurped the Republican Party. So... I think this thing I've been tweeting about, no benefit, no vote, ought to be the deal. We haven't gotten a damn thing out of the Democratic Party for a long time. And the last one, number 44 and the one before that, 43, Bush and Obama, well, there are pictures of Bush with his arm around uh, eight-year-old Barack Obama because his stepdaddy, adopted daddy, Lolo Sotoro, had done a lifetime worth of business with the Bushes. Uh, wow. Uncle George Herbert Walker, after whom George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush won president, was named, founded Halliburton in 1946 in Oklahoma. And Lolo Sotoro had been international executive vice president for Standard Oil. There was talk of him being a CIA asset. Well, yeah, Indonesia. see, he ran mm -hmm. the death squads for the Indonesian army. On mm -hmm. his own call, anyone could be assassinated. So when George Herbert Walker Bush became head of the CIA under the Ford administration, he just got with his old buddy in the oil business, Lolo Sotoro, and pulled off the hits. See, uh... Barack's grandmother has been acknowledged as being the woman that operated the channels through which CIA money went to the Southwest Pacific. So she introduced her daughter, 
who had just had Barry, Barack, to Lolo Sotoro, and they got married, and Lolo Sotoro adopted Barack Obama. The name was changed to Barry Sotoro. Mm -hmm. Now, when he went to high school in Hawaii, I know about that high school. I almost sent my oldest son to it. I could afford it, but I didn't think he observed, deserved it. 20 years ago, the tuition was $95,000 a year, not including room and board. When Obama went there, I've talked to two of his classmates. They independently state that the tuition, not including room and board, was 45000 Now, Business Insider reports his income for 2017 at over $200 million net. That's after taxes, deductions, write-offs. Mm -hmm. For this last year, 2018, they reported it as $570-plus million dollars. And that's after all deductions, tax, right? Trump doesn't make that net. I mean, even some of the richest people in America don't make that. Why? Because when his stepdaddy died, he was one of the 10, 15 richest men on earth. And he left everything in a trust fund, operated out of Indonesia, oh. so the American government can't touch it, that makes Barack Obama one-third beneficiary for the assets of one of the 10, 15 richest men on earth. See, wow. so we got a game run on us. So, you know, that little thing that Bush W. does when he gets with Michelle, they giggle and he gives a candy. The inside thing, is that supposed to be the same kind of candy he used to give to her husband when he was six, seven, eight years old? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, oh, wow. you know... The Democrats, the Republicans, nobody's done much of anything for black folk. The Republicans have just been a write-off, but they're anxious for votes now. The Democratic Party, I mean, more power to them, but if you vote for the Democrats, you're giving the LGBTQ, et cetera, the we, end. So we, we no get nothing out of it. We are no longer the priority minority. And then the other thing, too, is in about 30 years, there will no longer be a majority race in America, and we won't be the largest minority. It will be oh, Hispanics, we're, we're whites. We're surpassed. Over 13.1% of the Hispanics are 169 Yeah, well, they're increasing. Yeah. Now, in California, they're 54% of the population. Okay. So they're a majority in California. They're approaching that in Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So in Hawaii, there is no majority race, and everybody calls everybody cuz, and the politics there are completely different than they are in most states. Mm -hmm. So we ought to be looking at that and understanding what it is to make coalitions and what you need to do to deal with coalitions. See, a lot of the hate speech that you get right now is not going to work. Uh, it's dysfunctional. Some of it expresses some valid sentiments, but there's one thing I do want to touch on. It's the role of black people in America. There is a guy named Conrad Lorenz. He was a Jewish guy who escaped from the Nazis before World War II, and he postulated that what black Americans do is become the vicarious scapegoat for the rest of America to blame any time times get hard. I believe that. So we look different. I, this is my rule, the block rule. You can see it looking out the window. One block away, you can tell somebody black, but you can't tell somebody who's Asian, Mexican, Italian, Irish, uh, English, uh, Scottish, 
or anything else because they don't have that. But black folk are identifiable. You can't change the look. And every time something comes up, it's that. Spreading off of that, the pipeline between the schoolhouse and the jailhouse. America is the only industrial society that does not have a coherent government plan to reverse the obsolescence of the ordinary blue-collar worker so that he fits into a viable economy. So he's a commodity. He's labor. What do you do when you get a commodity glut to keep the price of the commodity from dropping, which is the working wage? You cut back production of the commodity, you store the surplus, and you subsidize the would-be producer. We put the surplus in a jail cell instead of a grain silo. The subsidy is the welfare Section 8 thing. And cutting back a production, you get the youth to drop out, bang out, drug out, get knocked up too early, too often, don't deal with getting an education, don't get uh, viable uh, vocational training. They have the wrong worldview, wrong lifestyle, dressed the wrong way. Hell, to walk in to try and get a job and likely get picked up as a burglary suspect or as a robbery suspect. Uh, they get that first felony, and they're pretty much out of the job market. You don't have to worry about them. Uh, the industry is not free prison labor. The industry is keeping the folk in the pen out of the labor market. See, that drives up the value of labor. Why are you interested in that? Because you don't want another Timothy McVeigh. See, Timothy McVeigh thought he was getting knocked out of it. And what he did to get the largest toll from one of those kind of crazy, unmanly acts, he didn't go get guns. He went down to the lawn and garden store and he bought ammonium nitrate fertilizer, mm -hmm. the most common fertilizer in America. They use it as the filling for 155 millimeter howitzer shells in the U.S. Army right now. It is pound for pound, one and a half times more powerful than dynamite. You can buy it anywhere. The sheriff's department in Memphis, when they want to blow something up, they go down to a lawn and garden place two blocks from the academy, buy 25 pounds of ammonium nitrate-based fertilizer sensitized with dirty engine oil, sprinkle either some brown sugar on it and ground-up charcoal, and you can get certain kind of salts you can put in there that help the thing out. You got a hell of a bomb. That's what he so did. it's not gun control, it's the character issue. You have emasculated the population, so they go off and kill innocent women, children, and everybody else they can shoot up on a schoolyard or out in the hood where they don't give a damn about what happens with the stray bullets on the drive-by. Well, Judge, we got to wrap it up, but I got to say it's been interesting and a pleasure. Thank you so much for stopping by School TV. All right. My pleasure, young brother. Keep up the good work. I like you right. Uh, I, I follow you on Twitter. All right. Yeah, and I, I think follow you follow you. me yes. too. So I like what you got to say. You got a lot of fans out there. And by the way, you're getting shadow blocked. Yeah, I know. I can I know. send you a formula for verifying that somebody sent it to me. It's interesting. It's a way of doing something. I, I, signing off and getting right back in and seeing if you got it picked up or 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you. All right. All right. Thanks. All right.